Welcome to the More Than a Club podcast with Marty Cuprian and Bill Lane. Welcome to More Than a Club podcast, episode 10. I'm your host, Bill Leahy, along with Coach Marty Cuprian, Youth Director here at Next Sports. Happy almost spring season, and we welcome our listeners back to yet another episode where we dive into youth sports and lacrosse topics. Thanks, Bill. I'm excited for today. I know we're going to have a fun episode ahead. Uh, today we have Coach McAvoy, someone who coached me when I was a little guy. I just asked him if he remembered it. He did. Coach Leahy, tell us a little bit more about your old friend. With the high school season approaching, we thought it would be a good idea to have a excellent high school coach on and I thought of my old friend coach John McAvoy so Marty and I are honored to have you here with us today coach former Philadelphia Wings teammate coaching colleague and one of the finest men I know and outstanding high school lacrosse coach and so your teams over the years have been one of the finest teams in the nation and we're happy you could join us today glad to be here thanks being too nice (laughs) you told me to tone it down so I did coach Coop yeah, I was looking up Coach Mack's resume. It's an impressive one. Uh, you're, he's a Malvern guy, graduated from Malvern in 86, just to take you back, Coach. Um, continued his career at Villanova, eventually played for the Wings for many years, and currently a director of admissions at Malvern Prep and a longtime head coach in two different stints there at Malvern Prep, so we'll talk more about your career, but welcome. Thanks. Good, glad to be here. You're div- divulging how old I am. I was born in 85, so I, I like to uh, set the timeline. Oh, man. <laughs> you can go at me later. For today's topic on youth sports, I wanted to talk about something that I've been asked recently by a couple parents. How do we teach resiliency in kids and in young athletes? And how do you teach grit? Those are the two words, resiliency and grit. I'm not sure I have all the answers. I wanted to ask you guys if you had any insight. The first idea is to discuss what grit means, and the best place to find this is with Angela Duckworth from the University of Pennsylvania, and you can watch her TED Talk on YouTube. And she studied young people throughout the nation uh, of all different backgrounds, and one thing she found in common that was a measure of future success was the ability to bounce back, to be gritty, as she called it, to have some resilience to you. And grit is often defined kind of in symbolic terms as the dirt or the material that's put down before the snow comes that helps you just get home and and succeed and and find your place. And when we can be gritty, we can be more successful in how we bounce back from setbacks. However, the challenge there is that you have to fail. You can't learn resilience. You can't learn to be gritty. You can't learn to find these attributes within yourself unless you fail, and and none of us want to fail. And as parents, we surely don't want to watch our kids fail. Often we jump in to take that away from them, that feeling of failure. And in doing so, we've just just hurt them. We've hurt their ability to learn how to find techniques in themselves and that inner spirit inside themselves to be able to bounce back. And thus, we've taken away what they need to be successful in life, which she found to be the most successful attribute, which is to be gritty. Coach? Um, yeah, I think my opinion, I, so I'm a lifelong educator, kind of groomed in the middle school world, and I've had some really good colleagues I've learned from, and, and one of those guys often said that life's not a smooth road, and life's a bumpy road with lots of road roadblocks along the way, and you need to learn to navigate that, and our job as educators or coaches is to is to help young people navigate those those bumpy roads and as opposed to smooth it out. However, I think as parents, as you know, we feel our job is to create that smooth road for our kids. And, and, and I think sometimes when it's not, we um, we get frustrated by that. And tr- in, in, in an effort to do well by our kids and smooth out the road, maybe we'd be better served trying to help them navigate those bumps along the way. Yeah, and both of us can speak to that as, as dads. I have two, you have five. I, yeah, wow. I lose count. I, I don't I don't claim to do it very well as a dad, but you know, easy for me to talk about it. Moving on to our X and O insight of the week with Coach McAvoy here. We've often enjoyed looking at a specific small aspect of the game for coaches, the X's and O's. And having Coach McAvoy here, I wanted to ask him boy, what is one area that we could discuss? And we were talking on the phone earlier today about what we would discuss here in this segment. And he said the three mortal sins, his three mortal sins of lacrosse. So coach, take it from here. (laughs) I hope none of my players are listening because they'll roll their eyes for sure. Um, I would say the things that drive me crazy or help me lose a little confidence in some guys is uh, I I will deem them the, the mortal sins of lacrosse. And I think the first one probably would be 
unforced turnovers, stick handling errors. You know, there's a difference. There's a difference between unforced and effort turnovers. I can handle the effort turnovers or trying to make a play type turnovers, but just the mindless, senseless throw the ball over someone's head or just drop it. You know, at the level that we're playing at, can get really frustrating. Yeah, we discussed this with Dr. Green on our last episode at LaSalle, how much time we would spend, in, especially in March, where they just played months' worth of what I call consequentialist lacrosse. You asked me if that was a real world, so it, it is now real world. <laughs> <laughs> but the idea that you, you, you can throw the ball away and play again at 9, 11, and 3 o'clock, you can't do that in the springtime. And that every possession is an opportunity to value the ball. It's a time to run your offense efficiently. It's a chance to get a good shot on goal and then to score and then to ride back, which is the most fun of all. But when that, when that fails because somebody threw a mindless pass, it just blew up your teammates, your offense, your chance to score. You gave the ball back to whoever, Haverford, the Hill Academy, and now you got to pay that price. Which could be a one-goal game, and that could be it. And, and so really, if you emphasize that every single day in practice, that – you make a big deal about just throwing the ball away. It is a big deal. It may not mean anything in the course of our practice, but in tomorrow's game, it could be one goal, and that could be the game. Hate to be extreme, but if we can get guys thinking that way. So as we discussed, you know, guys are playing lacrosse since they've been five years old nowadays and going to skill sessions here and there, and there's so much lacrosse being played that I know it's not a skill or a talent issue. I think it's a, it's a mental issue, like just lacking in focus. So... I'd say that's a big one for me, being an offensive guy. Me too. And the unforced turnover also goes for just stupid shots. number of times the guy just uncorked one, and I'm like, (laughs) what are you thinking? That shouldn't be a statistic, (laughs) a shot. It should be a turnover, right? It is. It's a turnover because you just thought you could get one. You know, that's not a shot. It's throwing the ball at the goal hard. There's a big difference. And so I would put that right in there as part of unforced turnovers. Yeah, shot selection. Job selection. Good one. I like that. Thanks, Coach. I'm going to add that. Retired. i got all this time to think now about all these. All right, the second mortal sin, for lack of a better word. Uh, First-time ground balls. Missed first-time ground balls. So the whole key is you got to be there first, right? Other than than that, it's a 50-50. So if you're you're athletic enough and astute enough to get there first, got to pick it up, right? So those bobbled missed balls, you know, you're doing all the hard work by getting there first, but you're, you're messing up the easy part. Uh, again, I think that's. I think there's a there's a technique to getting loose balls, and that's muscle memory. You have to drill, which we'll do. But for me, I think that's more about want to, right, and focus during the course of the game or practice or whatever it may be. And you know, I think my our kids probably think we're a bit extreme at Malvern, but whenever we're playing summer tournaments, uh, a fall league, a winter, a November recruiting tournament, you know, we try to always focus on that and never really let those those things pass. Yeah, they're really tough to swallow when you're a coach because there's an opportunity. There are almost always interesting opportunities too. Four on three breaks, five on four breaks, slow breaks coming out of of a loose ball, and a then they don't get loose ball on your own end of the field is an advantage. If you come up with it, the defense is reshaped. Attack two passes and attack. Yeah, and then they miss it. Now you're back to six on six. And a four-on-three break will take it any day, and you just missed it. So we would often do uh, drills where we just simply, this is the old Calvert Hall drill, just simply put the ball down and have a guy stand on the right and left. I mean, this is so rec league, it's frightening. And then you'd have a line of three guys facing the ball and simply go get the ball and have two guys slap down on the stick and the ball and come through with it. Head down, butt down, butt of the stick down, right through the ball, look at it, bring it up to your ear turn and throw it to the next guy in line who throws it back to one of the guys over the ball. He puts it down and the next guy goes through and don't go, don't be a slapper, a guy who slaps down the ball until you get three in a row. And if you can't get three in a row at some point, we're all running just for an enjoyable long run because it's, it's part focus. It's part technique. It's part, the team needs you. You have 40 brothers counting on you to pick up this ground ball, be the first guy there, like you said, and be, and pick it up. And really just again, muscle memory, nothing good happens until we get possessions, loose balls, or we catch and throw. So we, as coaches, we like to overanalyze and overcoach, especially mm-hmm. on offense. We can't do any of that unless we're catching and throwing and getting possessions. So. And we were speaking earlier today about uh, Coach, Coach Zimmerman and advice he had given me back in my days at Loyola. He was an assistant with Dave Cottle. And, of course, Dave Cottle was an outstanding X and O coach. It was just brilliant, actually, to, to listen to him and watch him diagram anything with X and O's. And then Coach Zimmerman would often say, there's genius in simplicity, Billy. 
And it gets about as simple as that. Catch and throw mindfully, accurately. Don't miss first-time ground balls. If possible, 90% of the time, nail those. And then the last one, if Coach Resch is listening, outstanding shout-out to another uh, simple yeah. genius is? Just don't get beat one-on-one defensively. Right? It has very little to do with lacrosse. It has all to do with athleticism and want to, in my mind. Now, look, that's really simple. And I think you can get away with that at the youth levels. In high school, when you get to college, I think – Offensive players are so athletic and so advanced, it's hard to play them one-on-one nowadays. But uh, but if you're striving for that, yeah. It's hard to play defense if you can't stop the ball. One of my favorite moments with Coach Resch was just like a Dave Cottle moment where I was the guy now, X and Oing, and being a Baltimore guy. And he simply said, Bill, it's a simple game. Run by people and don't get run by. That's about it. So if they were mortal sins, the three of them are outstanding, Coach. It's that simple, right? Coach Zimmerman, if you're out there, genius and simplicity right there from Coach McElvoy. Moving on to culture building and how to be a good teammate, we've been working our way through the New Zealand All Blacks, and I know our listeners have really enjoyed this. So many folks have reached out. And we're finally at point five, the last point in our long journey from uh, the All Blacks. And simply the last one is almost the simplest one. In some ways, it's almost a cliche, which is simply champions do the extra. And the philosophy simply means finding incremental ways to do more in every way, in the gym, in the locker room, on the field, as a team. It's almost a lot like the philosophy of marginal gains. And for a couple quick stories where I got to watch this firsthand, one was on the under-19 USA team. Austin Sims was an outstanding offensive player at Princeton University. And, of course, the team was loaded with offensive players, including Austin, for the under-19 team. But one thing we were going to have to deal with, and I knew that Coach McAvoy would want to chime in here, is dealing with the Canadians, we would need excellent defensive midfielders. So here we took almost a leading scorer in the Ivy League, and Coach Myers told him he was going to be a D-Midi. And talk about doing the extra and doing for your brothers. He simply looked at Coach and said, whatever the country needs, whatever my team needs, sir. Great attitude. Yep. And he was selected captain after that. And he's on the field as a D-Mitty an awful lot, especially in the final closing minutes of the gold medal game where we were having to deal with Jeff Teat and the rest of the Canadians trying to score with 10 seconds left. And when you look at any of those pictures on Lacrosse Magazine, or there's Austin leading the way. And he should be. You know, Coach, you have some thoughts on D-Mitties? Most important position on the field. Why? Um... Being an offensive guy like yourself, everyone's trying to find them, right? So in those closing minutes, they're trying to find the Austin Sims attack. That's supposed to be your weak link. So, you know, I think there's intangibles that go with that position. And when you make guys a D-Mitty, which the truth is (laughs) 90-some percent of the D-Mitties out there are all former offensive players. Most of them probably highly successful. Several of them... Maybe just didn't have the offensive tools, but they had the right stuff, if you will, to play defensive midfield. Part of it's a mindset, part of it's athleticism, that refusal to get beat, wanting to be the alpha in every one of those little one-on-one relationships. So, yeah, I think young guys look at that at first saying, oh, my God, you're taking me away from goal scoring and making me a defensive player. In reality, from a coach's perspective or even a player, their teammates, yeah, that's a badge of honor. I joke, you're like an offensive guard, right? You don't get paid much. No one knows your name. Only ones who love you are your coaches and your mom and your teammates. They recognize you when you screw up. Um, coach, as you're saying that, I'm having flashbacks of the Carlini, you know, swim moving everyone on Episcopal on his way to an uh, Interact Championship. That's right. Great um, one. I don't know what year that was, but it still haunts me. Um, and then the, the other thing I was thinking about as you guys were saying champions do the extra is University of Virginia last year. And I think they changed their whole schedule for the spring so that they were, you know, training and lifting more and getting ready to win a championship on a Monday um, instead of a Monday being off, you know, practicing on a Monday and practicing on a Sunday, lifting on a Sunday and, and getting ready for championship Mondays. So they were literally doing the extra all season long to finish as champs. Yeah, one of my other favorite stories when I was coaching was back in 2003. And John, I know you can attest to this. Those Malvern teams and those Ridley teams and those Conestoga teams in the early 2090s, late 90s were outstanding, especially Ridley. They had some teams that were just crazy good. 
I say it all the time, and really my whole coaching philosophy has been is centered around those days probably, and so I'll date myself. I, I came to Melbourne in 2000. Prior to that, I spent five years at Haverford, and that was the heyday of Ridley. That's when LaSalle was growing. The early 2000s, Ridley was still strong, and LaSalle's a growing monster. And I would say, to our, even today, I'm like, the teams, the hardest teams to beat are the ones who don't beat themselves. And in my mind, in those days, that was those old Ridley teams of the late 90s, early 2000s. Certainly has always been LaSalle. That's always been a trademark of the Hereford schools of the world for my, for my money. Um, and you, no matter what, tight game, blowout, whatever it is, you beat one of those teams, job well done. Um, you earned it because they won't let you they won't beat themselves. It really would beat you 6-1, 4-1. You felt like you lost 12-5. No mistakes. Every possession. Hold the ball forever. So we're leaving, having lost in 2003, and we look over, and Coach Resch points out, he says, look at that, Bill. There's there's two captains, blood coming down their knee. They just played the whole game. They don't come off the field. They were two-way middies, picking up the two iron goals, carrying it across the field to store it behind the baseball backstop. He said, Bill, like, We'd be having our freshmen do that. We got to get rid of that. That's class warfare, kind of looking at how our team is separated by grades. Look, they're the two captains of the team doing the extra like the All Blacks would. Nobody asked them to do it. That's what captains do. Captains move the goals. Servant leadership. Yeah, moving the goals. He said, we got to move in that direction. We're not tough enough to beat these guys. And then next year we did, but it took a lot of work saying, if we want to play Ridley, we'll play Ridley style. If you want to go play Calvert Hall, we'll beat you that way too. However, we had to get tougher. Where Philadelphia area lacrosse is today is a product of, the, I think, that environment, for sure. All right, moving on to our guest roundtable section of the episode. With so many questions to ask Coach McAvoy, uh, we'd actually like to begin where he first fell in love with lacrosse. Could you tell us about your first experiences with your youth lacrosse and where it took you next? <laughs> youth lacrosse in the 80s <laughs> didn't exist. Not where I grew up. <laughs> What did? What sports were you yeah, into yeah. first? So I'm from Havertown. I went to a Catholic school in Havertown, which seemed like everybody did that. And really, it was strictly football, basketball, baseball. Like, like I never saw or even heard of the term lacrosse until high school. Wow. I don't think I ever met anyone that played soccer growing up, not at least where I, I, I was. It was just was really those, those couple sports. Wow. Um, I got introduced to it going to Malvern. And... It's a little bit of a funny story. My neighbor was my ride to and from. It's about 35 minutes from where I lived. He was a senior. He had played lacrosse. It was pretty much like if you want to ride home, you have to play. Um, and that, I, I would think that was, you know, minus a few of the traditional high schools in our area. Um, that was very much the norm in the 80s. And so most of the time it was first timers in high school. At least certainly was at Malvern. Um, and I also had a ninth grade science teacher who was also the, the athletic trainer at Malvern. His name is Jeff Ewings, who still coaches in our area at Strathaven. Sure, sure. And he's been around a couple different schools and, and has grown phenomenally as a coach. He was 25. Wow. I was 15. He was my science teacher. He, you know, I say this endearingly, but he wasn't the um, <laughs> most nurturing individual in the world. And... I, I came up to him. I, I didn't like baseball. I didn't have the temperament nor the attention span to play baseball. So I grew up caddying, so I was probably thinking maybe I'll try golf. But long story is some influential upper upperclassmen pushed me that direction, so I got the gumption to ask him, hey, can I, can I try out? And I was already late, so in only the way he can do that, he gave me a really hard time about just trying out. But I think all along he was pretty happy to, to have me do it. And, uh, you know, I think Malvern in, in those days, the early 80s, mid-80s, you know, I joke, was a few years removed from wearing football helmets and shoulder pads. So everybody was brand new. And, you know, I wasn't very big. Um, what was your game? I Yeah, it was uh, – I had a few athletic skills or, or, or tools, I would say, just a few. And that very first practice, I could see it. I was, I was, was small. I was quick. Probably more more quick than I was fast, but I probably a little bit of both. Really quick, Coach. Really quick. And I remember this one <laughs> drill. It was literally the first day, and it was just it was a one-on-one drill. I didn't even know what it was, except I had the ball. He was explaining it. There was a senior 
playing defense. In your way. He had been there before I was brand new, and he was explaining, and all I could register in my mind was, okay, just get by him and shoot on that goal, right? Got it. So just a quick move. I don't know what I did. Split dodge, roll dodge, one of them. But it seemed pretty simple to me, and, you know, all the upperclassmen were razzing the other guys. So from there it clicked. So I would just say I, th I just think, um, you know, I love sports. I was awfully a willing – I was a very willing participant in everything I had done. But lacrosse seemed to suit what I had better than anything. And and Euling, Jeff was uh, he was great for me. You know we were um, he was he was a taskmaster for sure. Ridley guy. Um, he he was very demanding. You know you did it his way. You played his way, and all was good. And and um, I think I would always I would credit him for sure in, in teaching me how to be an athlete and how to be competitive and I think he really fostered that and pulled that out of me I think I had it but he really created the environment for that that's great coach Hewling's actually coached me when I first got started at Rose Tree Optimist so I had no idea he was a Ridley guy or that he ever worked and coached at Malvern really interesting path it was his first job ever he was a young guy sure um he went from there to a couple different places, but yeah, he's done a great job of everywhere he's gone. All right, then how about on to college and then indoor? Yep, played at Villanova with Randy Marks, phenomenal human being and a great, great man. And I've been always a very um, impressionable guy. You know, I take to good leaders, I take to good people. I've always been impressed with them, and and Randy definitely was one of those. He was really good to me. And much like Jeff, when I was in college, we um, we had really grown. The program had really grown. Same thing with Malvern. It was just really that time. You know, lacrosse was just starting to take off, and, and I was in that era. So, um, you know, he really gave me the ability to just play. And here's the ball. I used to joke our offense was called find the fish, and generally that was me. <laughs> Give me the ball and go. So um, I learned a lot that way. I learned a lot from some of these great – Long Island type players I played with back in those days at, Long, at Villanova. So. And those early days, the wings, they were great, weren't they? We had so much fun. Chris Bates has been on, Tony Resch. Talk a little bit about what it was like in the spectrum back then. Awesome, yeah. Um, I'm very intimidated to do it at first, and I wasn't even going to. And, and I had always respected some of those. those I mean, Philly, Philly lacrosse in those days was really, really tight-knit. Everyone knew each other. didn't matter how old you were, where you were from, what helmet you had on. And I guess some guys lured me in. Talking to Mike French was really intimidating. And it seemed pretty easy to me at first. I didn't have a clue, like most of us, what we were doing. And there wasn't too many Canadians on the team when I first started. Um, it, was, it was just fun, I think, more than anything else. Remember the crowds? They were just oh, wild. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. They were, like they a were truck awesome. and tractor pull audience slash lacrosse. Just tons of excitement. Um, the thing I learned the most, I would say I really learned lacrosse playing indoor, and, and as well as club. I mean, club was a, a great time. We had some great teams, didn't we? Our Eagles I team, our MAB Pinks team. Were. Oh, yeah. And, and playing against some of those two or three Baltimore club teams with the best players in the world. I think that's really where I really learned the game. Um, but getting back to the playing with the Wings, and, and at that era, I played for 10 years there, and I think that's where I really learned how to compete what it took to be part of a team, what it meant to be a really good teammate, sacrifice for your teammates playing a role. Uh, you know, everybody was a scorer going into that, right? So that was my game, carry the ball, score some goals. I wasn't much of a feeder or certainly didn't think about playing D, but I wound up being more of a defensive guy than anything else. Um, yeah, because we had Tom Marichak, the Gates. Talk a little Absolutely. about playing with those Canadians and Dallas. Unbelievable goalie, right? So I would always say the two best players I ever played with, and I caught this guy on the tail end of his career. I played with him for two years, was John Tucker. I Baltimore loved guy. how tough he was. He just had it. I don't know exactly what it was, but I just knew it when I saw it. And he just had everything. And when he flipped his switch, get out of his way. Um, and like I said, I, I caught him at the tail end of his career, but he, he had really left a mark with me and then Gary Gate Paul and Gary came in and Tom I think Gary really really impressed me because he what I liked about him he was arguably the best player in the game most talented goal scorer but he'd be your best loose ball guy he'd be your best defender 
if we needed a stop, he'd play a man down. If we needed a face-off win, he'd go get the ball. He literally was the ultimate team player and honestly, unbelievably insightful. He was thinking lacrosse the way none of us were thinking about it. That's right. And our last three guests have all spoken about the value of indoor lacrosse. Any thoughts there? Yeah, I mean, I know that's real prevalent right now, and that seems to be growing in this area, and I know a lot of clubs are investing more and more in that. So as I see that with our style at Malvern, I would say the benefit of doing I don't think you can just pick up and play a, a box game very effectively unless you drill it and you have there's a strategy to playing. I think the biggest takeaway, I would say I'm, I, I'm not really a believer in taking the box game and using it for how we play offense and, and the field. I'm, I don't know if I've bought into that quite yet. I'm not sure if really anybody has, even, even, even like most of the Canadian-type styled NCAA teams. But I think there's definitely some transferable skills. It's very prevalent as a defender. You know, you have to turn people and play people and play angles with just feet and that you can't rely on that long stick. So I think that's, that's um, invaluable. I think, obviously, catching and throwing in tight spaces and having soft hands is huge. But for – and how it translates to, to my team, I think the – what I'll call the good shot, bad shot radar you need to develop, right? High percentage shots, low percentage shots. And I don't know what it is, and I don't want to speak about a rival podcast, but I think it was maybe the Jamie Monroe podcast I listened to. He had some statistician or mathematician on, and he did this analysis, really in the analytics of lacrosse from the NCAAs. And I can't remember the stats, but a, a good American-born player, shooting percentage was about 33%, and a box-trained player, Native American or Canadian's percentage is like 65%. Probably better shooters, but I think the reality it lies with they take better shots. You know, how many times would you have a right-handed midi take a 12-yard shot running down an alley with his left hand with all his momentum going to the sideline, thinking it's a good shot? A lot. Would you ever see a Canadian guy do that? Never. Right. So they work really hard for angles and we're not to shoot at, and I think you learn that by playing box. You would never take those shots in the box game. That was the biggest education I think we all learned as American guys playing box. Yeah, for me, it was a two-man game and just being able to Im improve on that, that, almost the craftiness of playing a two-man game, not just setting a pick, but setting a pick correctly, running off of it correctly. Small windows, rolls, slips. Just Lots of scenarios off of that, too. Just not the pick and roll, but there's a lot of scenarios off of that, How to, like op options on the pick and roll. One other area that I think is really transferable today that I keep seeing more and more of, you know, I'm thinking of a LaSalle defense or an Episcopal defense and – Del Barton defense, awesome, really well-coached defense. You know, they don't, they don't create offense for us. They show, but they're quick to recover, right? So they show. Most people are trained to move it when you show. They're coming. This whole concept of the re-dodge, you know, that's something hard to drill, but I think you, that's really how you dodge in, in the box game. So. How about running a program versus running a team? You know, there was a lot of teams we would play at LaSalle that kept me up at night, but surely a Malvern team coached by you and your staff was top of the list. I think it's one of the few teams we weren't able to beat totally in my career. When I look back at the total games we played, I think you got me, Coach. Maybe not in the state title games, but you got me in the season games. But often you kept me up late at night. Your teams are just so well run. The box, the guys, it's, it's like you don't even coach the box. The kids run their own box. Your offense is fluent. Your defense is often unique. It's just a nightmare to prepare for. Good so, to hear. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, know. I didn't know that. If we, were, we had the edge on LaSalle, I'd be surprised if we did. But if we do, yeah, I think wow, you got man. us. I'm psyched to hear that. But I guess my point is you run a program from the freshman team all the way up and, and through. Any insights on how to run a program, which is different than running a team? I mean, obviously your varsity team is outstanding, but your whole program, every year, year after year, you just roll them through, and you're always, you know, outside of the blips where we all have a bit, just an off year, you, you got to deal with Malvern lacrosse. Um, well, thanks for saying Uh I think we spend a lot of time talking about our culture, for sure, and, and maybe the things we value in our players and from guys that are coming into the school. And if guys are asking and inquiring about Malvern or potential playing there, you know, I, I say this all the time. Every coach has their, their values. Any sport, any, any coach, there's things that make them tick. And, every, you know, I certainly have mine. Um, and I think we, you know, we, we talk about it all year, not just during the season, at all levels. 
you know, whether we're playing the summer tournament or a fall tournament or, you know, some Sunday league, you know, we're always trying to adhere to that. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. Um, Coach, could you just take me back to the start of your coaching career? Um, I, I'm admiring your the longevity and um, really the length of your career here, but when you first started coaching, you know, why did you start coaching and who, who gave you that boost? Yeah, that, that's actually interesting. I never really wanted to be a coach. I knew I wanted <laughs> to be a teacher. Yeah. Um, when I started, I was like 23. I, I was student teaching. I'm lying to you. I went back to school to get a, 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 um, a teaching degree, and I spent a season at Penn. Okay. Um, Where does that connect with Haverford? Yeah, yeah. So I started at Penn for a year. GW Mix was the coach. It was an interesting experience. I don't know if I loved college and maybe the personalities of college guys necessarily, looking back at it. But I was 23, 24, 25. I was just starting to get in the groove of playing indoor. Yeah. The club scene, I was way more interested in playing, and that was my motivation than coaching. It just seemed like the two went hand in hand. And then, um, and then I, I student taught, and I was lucky to get picked up by John Lanahan at Lone Marion. Wow. Where did your student teach? With John Lanahan, with That's John cool. Lanahan at Lower Marion. Oh, with him. I'm in sorry. In his class. Okay. So in those I days, the this. teacher picked you. You didn't pick them. And I guess he had a list of Villanova students, and I didn't know him. I knew certainly of him, like everyone sure. in the area. And next thing you know, I was assigned to John Lanahan. And talk about being intimidated. I was thinking, oh no. But total blessing in disguise. Wonderful man. A great mentor, even to this day, to me. Um, I, I student taught with him and, and coached with him. Actually, you know what? That year I was playing. Tony just became the coach of the Wings, Resch, and he asked me to help him at Penn Charter, and I was thinking, sure. Um, and then John Lanahan asked me, he's like, hey, you're here every day. Just coach with me. And That's incredible. I had no idea about that. So I spent two years with him, and I just was thinking I was helping out, and he had a really – one day had a really good, firm talk with me about giving me freedom to coach guys and some really good players were at Lower Marion in those days. Um, and I was a young guy, I wasn't much older than they were. So I think that really started to give me the bug. He put so much time and effort into it. He was so organized, he was so thoughtful. He was a great game planner. Like he would literally scrap everything we did on a Tuesday for a Saturday game, which I was really blown away by and it would work. <laughs> I could never do that. And then, um, and then I got my first real teaching job at Hereford with John Nostrand, and I spent four years with him. And we were really good friends, so it, it kind of worked well. And another friend of ours, Mike McGuan, joined us, and it was, a good, uh, it was a good time more than anything. There was a nice culture of lacrosse there. Again, I was lucky because John Lanahan gave me lots of freedom. It really forced me to have that freedom. Nody just gave it to me. And, you know, I tried a lot of different things. Um, you know, we, we had lots of give and take, I'd say that respectfully. And then I moved on to Malvern and I coached for two years with a guy there. I just, I was happy to go back to Malvern. It was kind of like a home to me. Um, I wasn't real motivated to necessarily to be the head coach or anything. I had a nice experience at Haverford. The gentleman at the time there was John Rohde, who had, who had really started to put Malvern in a really good setting in, in Philly lacrosse area. And he was, um, super accommodating to me and gave me lots of freedom. And then two years later, I he moved on and his boys started playing in college and I became the head coach. I really had a default. Yeah. But I think at that time I probably was ready. Don't sound so it. excited about it. I, I, was, <laughs> I, I wasn't really looking for it, but I think yeah. I was ready for it. I mean, I often long for the days of going back to be an assistant, greatest job in the world, right? Right. Absolutely. I had to learn how to do that. You know, I was a young coach at yeah. LaSalle was a head coach. That's all I had ever done. That's right. You've never been that. Have so you? I didn't, I had to learn like the hard way. And uh, actually it was Mitch Green, our last guest who said to me, I called him. I said, I'm not doing a very good job being an assistant. And it's not that I don't want to, it's that I don't know how to. And he said, you just serve Bill. It's that simple. You simply just serve, get yeah. people coffee, do what they ask. Like, what's your job? I told him my job. And he said, then you do it the best of your ability. In any way you can make the head coach and the coordinator's jobs easier, you do that. Yeah. And I was like, you're a genius. It's just so simple. Again, so simple and dead spot on. You know. So moving to offense, and we're offensive guys. You yeah. know, it's interesting because us offensive guys, as Coach Resh would always point out, we have egos, right? We run, we run the best offenses. We run it our way. 
<laughs> we kind of lock in on that. Overanalyze, overanalyze, yep. and X and O's, and here we are talking about stick work. But can you talk a little bit about your offensive principles? Because in short, you know, I, I often called you more than anybody else just to pick your brain because I just think you have an excellent offensive mind. And when you watch Malvern play, um, you prove it. So just the way you play offense and the things you value, some just general principles. You don't have to give away your trade secrets, but yeah. it is no, fun I'd to watch. I'd say it's pretty simple and pretty predictable, actually. But, I mean, real simply said, we, or I would, I subscribe to a motion principle. You know, we can do it out of a lot of sets, but we play a motion offense, which – and I make the kids describe what that means. You know, like pretend I'm a college coach asking you how you play offense. What, what would you say to them? You know, so – you know, I say all the time, you can X and O and show guys where to go. That's only, that only gets them so far, but they need to understand why they're doing it, right? So, you know, what is emotion? I just think it always starts with somebody's got to dodge hard. Someone's got to beat somebody, right? Um, so it starts with that, and then it's real simple. Six guys moving and the ball moving. Don't hold the ball too long. One more is always a good option. You never, never go too far wrong when that's what you can do. Um, and if you do that fast enough and hard enough, there's usually a lot of opportunities. You just got to be able to find them, read and react. I was always convinced you started your offense in September because they're all just humming with their feet, the way they motion, the way the ball moves. So, but the system isn't that set, right? Guys have the freedom to cut back door. Guys have the freedom to make a read of their own, and everybody else has to read off of that. I'm real into discipline. It may be perceived that it's very systematic it's really not it, it, you know there's it's really just one thing you might have a lot of looks out of it but yeah i think and then i say it this way there's 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 really three guys there's guys who are who stick to the plan and the x and o too much and they're limited mm -hmm. there's some guys that just wing it too much and they're hard to play with and there's guys that understand why you're doing it this way and where they should be they understand what space means right they don't just all crash the crease and they're the ones who can read and react and seize the opportunities as they come about. Um, and then, you know, that's settled offense. But as you know, it's really hard to score a settled offense. Yeah, tough. The other thing I've impressed always with your teams is that it seems that so many teams just do the same thing, right? Two, three, one, down the side, through X. Or even defensively, they're all just playing the kiddos that is that just so much lacrosse, and it's similar lacrosse. But when you play Malvern – it wasn't just similar. You do some different things. Can you talk a little bit about, I thought last year's defense was a little bit different. Right? And it gets the kids' attention, and it makes other teams have to prep and deal with you. We played a little zone last year, I mean, that grew a little, little bit more, and we moved in and out of it. I'm not a big zone guy. I like playing against the zone defense a lot because it gives us control, so I like that. I don't know if too many teams play zone very well. It's always at a last resort. I think we did it. Um, the only way I, I succumbed to saying, okay, let's do it to my defensive coaches with Paul O'Grady and Will Halls and Matt McCormick helped us as well last year was um, as long as we could create pressure. So that sit back type of zone, I don't really like, and I wouldn't play that. But as long as we're pressuring the ball and we're dictating options, I think sometimes that gives a defender a little bit more confidence on ball. Not to take the ball away, but just to make them uncomfortable. Yeah, a little less confidence on offense, as I can attest to you firsthand. Yeah. And not only playing the ball hard, but where you funneled guys. We really had our hands full. We were just like, what exactly are they doing? Uh, of course, I would look at Coach Rash, and he'd be like, it's a zone. <laughs> They're pressuring us, and we just weren't, weren't ready. It's all just good coaching, good X and O stuff, Coach. Good assistance. Yep. Humble, too. Yeah, as you mentioned, some of the names of your assistant coaches, it sounds like a pretty impressive lineup just right there. And then I was also thinking about some of the defensive players you've had recently at Malvern Prep. And just in general, who are the players that stand out, you know, over the last 20 years of being involved with the program as either leaders or, um, you know, the star players or guys you've learned from or guys that made you a better coach? Yeah, Malvern guys, you're asking. Malvern Prep, yeah. yeah. Um, we've had some really good athletes, you know, and, and – um, I think there were some guys that just matched my mentality well. And, and we have a unique culture at the school. And, you know, I, I don't know anything different. So lacrosse culture is pretty similar to the school culture. Um, some big names. DJ Driscoll back in the early days was a oh, yeah. monster. <laughs> great athlete. And, and anything he did translated to the, to the defensive end of things. Did great at, at Notre Dame and on, with the world team. Um, 
I think he was a captain at Notre Dame. Yep. Right? Yep. He he was he was special in those days, I would say. And that was in Malvern's when we started really getting going. Sure. Um, I, I've been lucky enough to have a lot of brothers. Yeah, yeah. You know, I think Malvern's very has a really good alumni base of brothers, families. We we tend to gravitate families or, or capture families, not just a boy here or there. So the Lane brothers come to mind, the Creighton brothers come to mind for me, the McCready's brothers come to mind for me. You know, I'm, I'm lucky to get those guys. If Steve Lane is out there listening, he wants uh, over a late night and probably too many adult beverages at a lacrosse tournament. You know how, you know, you have to uh, obviously talk about more lacrosse before you wake up and coach. Um, sung your praises for about 40 minutes, and it was like the gospel. Um, of Coach McAvoy through the words of Steve Lane. so Easiest guy in the world to motivate. He talked about his first practice and how you motivated him. Yeah, he's, he was a fierce competitor. He'd be a great coach. He's not coaching right now. Doesn't he help? I think he helps out with the next tape, doesn't he? He does, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, he'd be a great coach. You're weeks away from spring season. What are you looking forward to? Um, I, we return a lot of guys. So I'm excited about that because that gives you a nice foundation. We return a lot of guys that, that that had nice roles to play last year. We lost a great senior class that was um, leadership's a totally overused word. They had great chemistry. They were great friends. They truly loved playing and all that it incorporated. And really all of them did. And that's unique. I mean, they didn't just like winning. Or they didn't like shooting drills or man up, but they liked ground ball drills. They liked the competitions when the one team lost. And, you know, they liked the bad times. The grind. Yeah, they really like embraced the that, the, the whole process of, of a team. And um, that can't go understated. So, you know, I think a lot of people jump to, oh, you guys return so many, you should be good. Yeah, we do, but you can't underestimate, you know, chemistry teamwork, leadership. So I think I'm looking forward to seeing how that evolves, honestly. And, you know, I've, I've changed my tune. You want to win every game, but I think the losses we had, you know, we were five and five early in the season last year. And boy, I was scratching my head thinking maybe I'm just not connecting anymore. I, you know, there's a we range, had those conversations. Range of emotions <laughs> we were like on. two and five. You know, I think you see those that we had tons of injuries and, you know, I think they're all opportunities. Right, so if you can see them that way, and in our league's unique, Marty, as you you know, playing everyone twice, which we're going back to. Right. So what That's has exciting. to happen? No matter who you are, and the worst thing you can do is beat somebody pretty bad the first time through, yeah. <laughs> because everybody learns. You know, when you lose, you learn what you have to do next time, and and if you win, it's even harder to learn what you need to do because what did they learn? Is what you start coaching against. So. Um, yeah, in a couple of weeks, you two will be at it. Coach Coop over at the Haverford School. And yeah, man. Malvern, one of the best rivalries north of Baltimore. And you got him last year at the end. And this will be a little bit different without John Nostrand moving on to Gilman. Yeah. Should be interesting for you. Definitely. I, you know, I think Haverford always, is, always seems to be the, at least in my mind, they're the favorite, right? So I like being in that position. You know, they haven't in the past two years, so I'm sure they're feeling the opposite. And that's what's that? That wounded dog is dangerous. And and I really like Brendan Dawson. I think he's he's a great guy. I, just, I saw him the other night, and I was joking. He's such a nice guy and a good 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 young man that I have to trump up all these ways I don't like him so I can compete with him. <laughs> it's I like hard. it. It's going to be hard to do. He's such a good guy. My first meeting there, we just watched the film of last year's uh, Malvern's vi victory over Haverford. So, yeah, that set the tone. <laughs> and uh, I'm an Episcopal guy, Episcopal alum, and coached at Episcopal. So moving on to different colors, but couldn't be more honored to coach in the interact with some, some fantastic coaches and really great guys. So, Coach, I wanted to ask you a little bit about club lacrosse. As, as you've been around um, for a while in the high school game and you've seen the professional side of club sports grow and really club lacrosse in our area go from uh, really the Dukes and Mesa and Triple H to you know 20 25 other clubs um, that you've seen you know probably a lot come and go what are your thoughts on club lacrosse um, I think they're at a crossroads especially with the new recruiting landscape yeah so in an earlier day I would say clubs serve the role of, of developmental, 
part of this is where you're, where you're coming from, what, what maybe school or youth program you're a part of too. So the importance for an individual might be, you know, it's relevant. But I think in the elementary, middle school years, I think clubs served the purpose of being very developmental, as long as they were doing that. Um, and then in high school, I think the primary focus, at least for a Malvern guy, was just give you a little extra recruiting exposure and the, and the developmental end part of it goes, goes away a little bit more. But so I think with the new, the later recruiting stage, that's been extended for two years. Yeah. So I think that's, some, that's a new phenomenon for, for clubs. Um, I think tournaments and being seen in freshman, sophomore year, or maybe the tail end of sophomore year are not as important. So I'm hoping that some clubs will see it that way. Um, and then there's, an, uh, there's a whole other animal out there. As, as I look at this junior class right now, as they enter the summer after junior year, and I mean, that's going to be a little bit unprecedented too, especially for the club scene from a college recruitment end of things. Most of those teams, maybe, let's say half the team is already committed to a school and half the team isn't. I'm, I'm curious how they're going to handle that. I'm curious what opportunities will be come, out, come about this summer and next fall for rising seniors because there's going to be more of those looking for more good players as rising seniors looking for a place to play and more college spots open than ever really in the past decade or so, I would say. So I'm curious what will come about, either clubs or college exposure or just chances to get seen. Um, stay tuned, I don't know. So I think from a club standpoint, yeah, I think that's really, I think that's where I see clubs. Yeah. I'm not really affiliated um, on purpose, you know. I don't have a lot of time. I've got a lot of kids of my own. <laughs> and, and if I have some time, I'm going to spend it with Malvern usually. So I like to say I'm a, I'm a friend to all and I'm a friend to none. <laughs> <laughs> so what recruiting advice would you give a junior in high school, Malvern guy and his parent? Yeah. You know, I guess it's a little bit pie in the sky, but if, you can if you're athletic enough and you can play, they're going to find you. Um, control what you can control, right? So... You can't control if they're going to like you or not. You can only control your effort. You can't control your grades, you know, and I, I've seen the opportunities presented because you, you have a really great academic profile and doors that aren't going to be open for you because you don't. So I'd say, look, block out the noise, right, and control what you can control. Don't listen. You know, no two boys are exactly the same. The recruiting process is highly personalized and uh, easy for me to say because I'm not doing it and I'm not living it, but as much as a, a young man and his parents can, can think that way, I think it would be well served. Block out the noise. I like that. Dr. Green, from last episode, we talked about noise yeah. and all the different forms that it comes into kind of getting your head and the experts, great chatter. The internet and all that stuff. Yeah. All of it. Yeah. Great stuff, Coach. All right. So now, yeah, yeah. a little finishing touch at the end, my favorite part. I mentioned that every episode, but a kind of rapid fire homework where Coach John McAvoy offers some quick insights into. Some homework for players, parents, and coaches. So Hold on. You asked me a question to prepare for, and I, you put it in there on purpose. Which one's that? The one, something along the lines of biggest regrets? Yeah. One memorable game you wish you had back? Sure. Oh. Did you, did you use that on purpose, right? No, I didn't. I, it, it, I we have it in there for was. lots of the guys, but you want to go there? 2008, 4-3 state championship Damn. game? Come on, Bill. Yeah. Three. Can you imagine we played for 48 minutes and you scored four goals and we scored three? Four, three. And we're offensive guys. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's yeah, that brutal. was that was yeah, tough. When you everybody, played. LaSalle beat us 4-3. We yeah. both had very talented teams. That was the Tucker Durkin and Matt McCready's show. Oh, man. I really thought at the end of the day it was Dialing those two just going at it. He was going to win it for your team. Tucker Durkin was going to stop him. <laughs> and when exactly Tucker failed, Nico Amato played off his rocker. Yeah. And so – we got you on that day, but. but when I saw you pose that question, I was like, "There's only one. There's only ever been one. That was it." <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was a tough one. To Sorry, glad. Quite okay, coach. All right, homework. You ready? Yeah, man. So you got 15 seconds, if that, to give quick homework to players, parents, coaches, and then I'm going to ask you what you're reading or listening to this, these days. So here we go. You ready? Homework for a player who's listening. So a high school guy, the recruiting prospect, or how you're going to play within your high school team, control what you can control. Right? You can control your stick work. You can't control the coaches, the refs, the other players. You can control your effort. 100% effort, 100% of the time, you're always striving for that. Good advice. 
for parents who are listening? Enjoy your son's experience. Um, it's his. You know, enjoy it as much as you can. Allow for the, for the speed bumps along the, the road. They're all opportunities for a great time later on. For coaches? Yeah, I would say I should listen to this myself. It's still a game. And at the end of the day, it's supposed to be fun. That's great advice. And if we realize that maybe they're not having fun with this, maybe we should rethink things. What are you reading or listening to these days? Yeah, I don't. I'm, I hate to say I don't read a lot. I spend tons of time in the car, taking kids to and from. So I'm listening. I'm a big podcast guy. Um, I li- I listen to a book. Um, Commander Abrams off. This is your ship. Uh, it's a management tool. It's a good story about the worship in the Navy. Um, the commander was the last in his class. Was given the worst ship, worst performing ship in the Navy. Made it the the whatever the parameters are, the metrics for rating ships successfulness. Made it the most successful ship by giving ownership to the crew. Um, really good book for management for teams organizations, schools. Great listen. A great book. Yeah, a friend of mine gave it to me. And another book I, I did read, actually, starts with why. Simon Sinek. Right? Gives purpose, right? Relevance to what you're doing. Good for a team. Good for me. Work. Good for schools. Great stuff, Coach. It was a thrill having you on our show. Thanks for coming. It's good to see you again. And have a great season. I'll be out to watch. Yeah. You don't have to deal with me anymore. I still have a lot of questions for you. (laughs) And good good spending time with you too, Marty. Thanks, John. I appreciate it. Thanks for coming down to Philadelphia, reliving the glory days, driving down Broad Street, and then sharing with us, joining the podcast here today. We also love Jamie Monroe's podcast as well. So not a rival. Uh, Definitely uh, listening to that just like you are. As we wrap up today, we wanted to wish good luck to all of our players and our other coaches as they approach the best time of the year, the opening of spring lacrosse and all the wins, losses, rankings, and standings that go along with it from youth to high school to college. Like John said, remember to have fun. We can't wait to watch it all unfold, and we can't wait for our next episode. From the Navy Yard, we're signing off. Thank you.